Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. For months and months and months, people were anticipating the book. It's this book titled Gambler. Why? Because there are chapters in this book devoted to the guy who authored this book with his relationship with Phil Mickelson. Now, Billy Walters authored the book, but who really wrote it? Well, the guy who wrote it is Armin Katayan. He's won countless Emmy Awards. He's been a correspondent for 60 Minutes. He's been on the sideline of NFL games for CBS, but he's also written a lot of really interesting books investigating the world of sports. He investigated the life of Billy Walters, helped construct this book, which could be the adaptation of a screenplay into the life of somebody who's lived his entire life really at risk. My conversation with Armin Katayan starts now. Today's Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focused group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, we welcome in the man who collaborated on this book. He is, as I said, Armin Katayan. Good morning. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Gary. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, you have written uh, books, including one about arguably the most significant uh, historical figure in the history of golf, Tiger Woods. So part of this book obviously centers on a subject matter which is central to what I do on an everyday basis, which is which is cover golf. But this is such an expansive read about an extraordinary American life. Um, I, I want to ask you, as somebody who's covered sports for decades and decades, how familiar were you with Billy Walter's life before you started this project? Well, it's interesting. My my first intersection with Billy, I was at Sports Illustrated as a writer reporter in the mid '80s. Um, in 1986, in March of '86, we produced this 32-page special report called "Gambling in America." You know, America's national pastime. One of the stories in that report was on the computer group, and I still, to this day, have that file. It's a fading gray file that says "Computer Group" on it. And inside there were all the requests for search warrants that were used across the country when the FBI did all these raids in 1985 on the computer group. And Billy Walter's name is all over those that file. Um, he was moving the money for the computer group at the time. Um, his uh, his uh, betting operation was uh, was raided. So in June of 2020, I got a call from a mutual friend, somebody I had worked with on various other stories on the, he was on the crisis communication side. He was representing Bill 
uh, Glenn Bunting. And, and I, Glenn said to me, do you know Billy Walters? And I was like, uh, the computer group, Billy Walters. I said, I don't know him. I know of him. I know his reputation. I said, well, he'd be interested in talking to you because he's going to write his autobiography and we think you're the right person to do it. So Billy and I in June of 2020, um, we spoke a couple times on the phone. I went out to California and met him. Um, I wrote a couple sample chapters based on a previous manuscript that had been produced and that stopped in 2006. Um, Billy liked what I wrote. And so in September of 2020, we, we got to work and we didn't finish. I thought it was going to, honestly, I thought it was going to take about a year, but then when I began to understand the scope and the depth and the controversy and the complications in Billy's life and this larger than life experience that he's been living for now 77 years, I was like, well, this is going to be a little bit longer than a year. And it actually took us, I was still making tiny little edits in this manuscript or in the book um, that was at the typesetter at the time in June of, of this year. But the hard work was really done in March. And it was so it was almost three years of my life and um, three years of Bill's life. And I, you know, I did the math this week and I was like, you know, three years times 50 hours a week times 50 weeks a year, blah, blah, blah. Oh, like 7,000 hours. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of hours. And, but that's what it took because as you, as you said, he has lived a uniquely American life. I think he's like an American original. I don't think there are many other Billy Walters out there. Um, the way that his life, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, has laid out um, all the ups and downs, uh, all the success. Um, you know, you don't you don't beat the books for 36 straight years. You're not recognized as the greatest sports better of all time on the, as Jack Binion so wisely said, you know, uh, if there's a Mount Rushmore of sports betting, there's only one face on it. And that face is Billy Walters. There's no one else that's even close. And that's, I mean, I've never heard that come out of anybody's mouth before. You know, it's, um, there, there's so much in here. And like I said, obviously there are a lot of people who are going to watch and listen uh, to this, who, who have an affinity for the game of golf. And it, it certainly people are curious about what he was going to write about his relationship with Phil Mickelson, but also like he spent his life playing golf and playing golf for stakes that at the time, late seventies, early eighties, were, were for more money than that they were playing for on the PGA Tour on a week-to-week -week basis. So there's plenty to get to. But I, I want to start with something that he wrote in the, in the prologue of the book. Part of the reason why I was interested in how this book was going to be presented was, was there anger? Was there vengeance? Was there this sense of, I need to get back at people because one of the last chapters of his life, and hopefully he lives many, many years beyond present day, the man was incarcerated after he turned the age of 70. But his first reason that he wrote in the prologue as to why he wanted to write this book was to give hope for those suffering with addiction, that he believed his story could help people. I'm in recovery myself as an alcoholic. There's a, there's a phrase in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, attraction rather than promotion. And I am certainly not one to talk about what people should and shouldn't do. I just try to hopefully do certainly the right things on a day-to-day -day basis. When you, when he shared that with you, 
Did you think to yourself, with any ounce of cynicism in your mind or heart, like, really? And after hearing that, and then going through this entire exercise, do you feel like he fulfilled that promise? Well, that's a very good points all the way around. So let me start with sort of the bigger picture that you brought up in relation to Phil. Was there going to be score settling? You know, was this a revenge tour for Bill? And, you know, part of the reason that it took so long was there's a process. And, you know, when writing books like this, you have to, I mean, that's one of the reasons I transcribed every single word that Bill said in every single interview I did. And I did 60 other interviews beyond the hundreds of hours I spent with Bill was to get an understanding of his voice and his point of view and what kind of man is he. And, and we had these conversations and in the edits, we stripped out a lot of the um, score settling. And I said, Bill, it just doesn't sound right to be, you know, to get too personal here. Um, so that was part of it. That was just part of the process. As far as his motivation, I didn't really know in the beginning um, why he wanted to write a book. And that's really important. And it's one of the reasons it's so high up in the book, because we wanted pe people to know. And, you know, Bill was a, was a gambling addict with a capital A. He was a hardcore drinker, probably right on the edge of being an alcoholic, if not an alcoholic, for the, the first 40 plus two years of his life, starting at a very early age. So by the time I got to know Bill Walters and saw what he has done for other people, um, the, the bullshit quotient kind of went away. Um, I believe that Billy's head was in the right place, that he does want to help people, because in the end, some of the best reviews I've read so far have been by people that don't care about golf. They don't care about sports gambling, but they're inspired by Bill's story because in the end, ultimately it is really inspiring. And that for me as a writer was really the major attraction. Yes. I know what's going on in the world of sports gambling. I love the game of golf. I play the game of golf. Obviously what Jeff Benedict and I did with tiger. Um, I understand high stakes gambling, but for me, um, there was a moment when uh, Bill's lawyer sent me all the letters that were written to Judge Castell in the Southern District of New York prior to Bill's sentencing. And yes, there were letters from Dave Faraday, David Faraday, and, and um, Peter Jacobson, and people that Bill has known for a long time in this world, and even Harry Reid, the late Senator Harry Reid. The ones that caught my attention were the ones that were written by employees of the Walters companies that had worked for Bill for more than 20 years. Oh, when my mother passed away, I didn't have enough money to go to Mexico to, to give her a proper burial. Well, what did Bill do? He quietly anonymously paid for that, for the trip and the travel and all of that. When another um, employee's son was injured and the hospital bills were mounting, what did Bill do? Bill paid the hospital bills anonymously and quietly. He's done more, um, philanthropy in Las Vegas, arguably, than almost anybody else in that city over the last 25 or 30 years. So, yes, was I skeptical in the beginning? Absolutely. Was the motivation just to get his name out there and kind of take a victory lap? Um, I mean, Bill's got an ego like all of us do, but I didn't feel like his ego overwhelmed me 
and it doesn't overwhelm the book. I think in the end where he says, you know, when you meet your maker, it's like, well, what have you done? What have you given during the course of your lifetime? And I think as you've read the book, you'll, you know, you know that he's, I think, as I say, the risks of Bill's life, and there have been enormous risks at times, have been far outweighed by the rewards of Bill's life. And I think there's something to that when you're looking at it as a reader and also somebody wanting to be a better person. Um, because, you know, Bill will be the first to admit for a long time early in his life, he was not a very good person, not a great father, not a great husband. Um, but he's willing to, and I think that's one of the pieces of the book that's as as powerful as anything else is Bill's willingness to admit his faults. Um, a lot of people don't like to do that. They certainly like to do it publicly mm. um, to the level that Bill's done it. So yes, um, long-winded way of saying I was very concerned and conscious of it, but in the end, um, you know, he won me over and by his actions, not by so much his words. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask if as somebody who is, done a, a lot of vetting of people that you have spent time with where you have to go back and corroborate uh, as, as an elite investigative journalist for as long as you've been doing this. I, I wonder, did you find him easily believable from the outset? Not like believable after, after going back and, and corroborating like a good con was believable. Did you find him believable? Like sitting down going, Wow, this guy, this, there's an authenticity to him that's like palpable. Well, that's the word, the authenticity, because I can smell bullshit. I've heard enough of it, <laughs> and you've heard enough of it over the course of your career and my career when somebody's just laying and laying it down in a big way, and you're like, really? Okay, this isn't going to be too hard to corroborate because it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to corroborate. But some of Bill's stories really were so crazy that you're like, this can't be true. I mean, he, he didn't. <laughs> this bird on the wire story, you know, and he's down $4,000 and he's only got two and he's betting on which way a bird is going to fly off a wire left east or west. And sure as, you know, night follows day, I call the guy who was in the room and he goes, Oh yeah, no, that's what, I, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. And the golf stories, you know, somebody should do a movie just about the professional gamblers invitational. I mean, totally. There was every hustler and con man and, you know, guys that could play for a lot of money uh, showed up in Vegas for that week-long tournament. But that was one of my – I think that's one of the reasons Bill wanted me um, as his co-writer because I would bring that kind of rigor to the book. And he would tell me – I mean, I can't tell you how many times he called me and he would go, okay, call Dewey Tonko, call Bobby Baldwin, call Jack Binion. They'll be able to corroborate what I just told you because he wanted that um, – he wanted that – solidity to the book that that foundation to the book and it was fun to talk to those guys because one rounder after another one great storyteller after another you know i got to spend time with doyle brunson before he passed away i got to spend time with um gosh dewey tomko bobby baldwin billy baxter just this 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 murderer's row of the best poker players and gamblers in the history of gambling and one after another, like, oh, no, that's what happened. Yeah, no. Then let me tell you something else. And then, you know, you get, get a little more. So the story would be richer. And I could go back and forth with the conversations that were taking place. But, yeah, I mean, 
was he the most successful used car salesman in the history of the state of Kentucky at the age of 19? He was. Yeah. Did he make $56,000 in commissions that year? The equivalent of a half a million dollars in today's dollars? Yes. Because I, I went back and Googled it as like, how much is $56,000 in 2022 dollars? Oh, it's $550,000. Oh, okay. Um, it's just, it's just, I, Bill has lived, I think Bill's lived about six or seven lives. You know, he's 77. And you can look at how these chapters kind of lay out and you can say, oh, the first four chapters is one life. The next four chapters or five chapters is another life. And then you just kind of go, oh, he went to prison when he was 71 years old um, on insider trading charges. And he spent 31 months in prison on charges to this day. Um, to the day he dies, he'll say he never gave anybody inside information. So, yeah, it was it was a challenge, but it was a, um, you know, coming off of the Tiger book, another high wire act in, in you know, you don't want to fall from that wire because you're going to splat pretty. That'll be the end of your journalism career. You screw that one up. So, yeah, no, this was a, you know, if, if I was going to get tested, this was a good one to to be put to the test the um he, he also says before we we embark on this this relationship with phil mickelson um that he states that he thinks you learn more from sinners than saints as somebody yeah. who has spent a lot of time talking with both parties um <laughs> do you share that feeling i you know when i when i wrote that i was like it kind of came to me in a I don't know, in a rush, you know, one of those things you're like, huh, sinners and saints. Because Susan's a saint, his wife, a complete saint with a capital S. You know, you, you're married to Billy Walters for going on 47 years. You deserve a Medal of Honor, as far as I'm concerned, in a lot of ways. Because he's, you know, he's a demanding individual. That's one of the reasons he's been so successful in his life is because he sets a very high bar. Um, but I think in the end, when you look at Bill's life, there's full it's full of a lot of mistakes it's full of a lot of failure um but that failure has been coupled with an almost maniacal drive to be the best um to win whether it's selling cars or it's the computer group moving money or it's owning at one point in time 13 golf courses and really building public golf in Vegas. If there's one person that built it, it was Billy Walters owning or co-owning 22 car dealerships. I don't know how there are many hours there were in a day for Bill to do all this stuff. And then he's gambling like a madman from just about right now in August through the final four and spending hundreds of hours, you know, every month trying to beat, the, the best bookmakers in the world. So when you're when you're trying to just line all that stuff up, it gets to the point where you're like, okay, he's doing this, but he's doing four other things. And oh, he's trying to do this over here too. So yeah, I think his I think the sinners and saints, I kind of like that. I think you can learn more from sinners and saints. You know, I really do. Especially sinners who who find themselves and change their lives. Cold turkey. I don't think some of the guys that Billy met in prison um, would qualify for people I could learn a lot from. But Billy, to his credit, he became a mentor to at least a, a couple dozen 
men in prison mm-hmm. and help change their lives too. And I know for a fact that he's in a couple of instances, he's gotten them jobs. And now with hope for prisoners that this, um, really powerful nonprofit that Billy's involved with now where men who are convicted um, felons who come out of prison have, have done their time. There's a place now, Hope for Prisoners in Las Vegas, where they can go and get training to have second lives, you know, to learn a trade, um, to do, to learn how to even get a social security card, how to be, how to be a productive citizen. And who does that? Well, Billy Walters did it. And, that's where you go, oh, there's the sinner, but there's also the saint, you know, who's doing things for people that I don't know a lot of people in my life um, that have done as much as quietly and anonymously and and do, does it not for the notoriety, but to help others than, than Bill. And I think that's one of the things that is the heartbeat of the book is there's a goodness to Bill that that I think in the end is you take this 77 year journey with him in the end, you're like, wow, that's some, that's some kind of man right there. And uh, that's how I felt, you know, at the end. You know, Armin, the, the collaboration you did with Jeff on the, the Tiger book um, was examining one of the most extraordinary falls from grace in the history of not just American yeah. sports, the global sports landscape, his cultural relevancy, and now we have Phil Mickelson, who, along with Tiger, the two most successful and significant figures in the game of golf, um, you know, really since, I think, since Jack and, and Arnold Palmer. And that goes back to Arnold won his last tournament in 1973. We're talking about, yeah. you know, 50 years. So, so <laughs> Phil and his relationship with Billy, this is, a, this is also another extraordinary fall from grace, circumstances being different. And a lot of people are going, okay, now we're going to really get the good stuff. The Phil book by Alan Shipnuck had some stuff in it. Yeah, okay, but now this, this is going to peel back even more layers. When you started to talk about Phil with Billy Walters, were you surprised that he said, the personal stuff, I'll leave that for others. I'm going to focus exclusively on this. Yeah, we had a personal relationship, but we also had a professional partnership. Were you surprised that he didn't, you know, take off both gloves and 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 go in on the personal yeah. stuff. Well, that was a, that's a very interesting point because that just didn't happen at the beginning. It was a process. You know, I, I think it's fair to say Bill was really upset at Phil, really upset for him. Bill's a man of his word. When he s- says something to you, you can take it to the bank. I think the cardinal sin for Phil was telling Bill that he would testify or make a public statement that in support of Bill, when Bill's life was on the line, that Bill had never provided any material non-public information, any inside information on any stock to Phil Mickelson, which Phil had done on two separate occasions in August of 2013 to the FBI agents that were interviewing him, that had interviewed him. So um, I understand, I've seen Phil at a number of different times, particularly when I was covering, we were covering Tiger. He and Ricky were the only two that ever stood out for extraordinary lengths of time. 
and signed autographs after a practice round or after a pro-am. And I was like, you know, and I've been around Phil because I talked to him about Tiger at various times. Um, I find him to be a very complicated person. Um, the personal side and the professional side. And when you see the the, the scope of his self-admitted addiction to gambling and those that is chronicled to a degree in the book. And that was another decision that we had to make was like, how much is too much? With Phil, that conversation was taking place almost continuously to try to find some some sensible, fair, common ground where Bill could say what he wanted to say about the five-year betting partnership and also make his point about how deeply disappointed he was in Phil for not testifying on his behalf. It took us a while to get to the point where Bill's 100% attitude was, I'm not getting personal here. I'm not going to, this is not a um, revenge tour um, because I thought it would detract from the book. I really did. I thought if you, if you go low in those kinds of situations and Jeff and I, when we did the tiger book, we were calculating that all the time is like, how much is too much? You know, you want to make a point, but you don't want to pound it to death where people are like putting the book down saying, I can't read any more of this. You want it to be clear. And I think when you talk about a, how the, and I love the fact is that it's it's the course of their relationship. It's when they meet for the first time in 06 at the AT&T and all they do is talk sports on that final Sunday with Freddie Jacobson and, and the gentleman from the Ford Motor Company. And then they meet again in 2008 at the Wachovia. Bill says, hey, do you do partnerships? And Billy goes, yeah, I do partnerships. You got to have, a, you know, a that I can't get to and you can bet at bigger stakes because people are very conscious of how much I can put down. Phil had both. It was very successful for a long period of time, but then Phil wanted to bet outside the partnership and Billy for reasons, as he explained in the book, if he's neutral on a game or he could use Phil's bets to camouflage other bets, they did that. The numbers for Phil from 2010 to 2014, you know, what? 858 times he bet 220 to win 200 1151 times he bet 110 to win 100 that's gross wagers of 311 million dollars alone just on those two stacks of bets so 7000 bets over the course of that four or five year period 3000 plus bets in one year nine almost nine a day so phil to his credit has admitted that he had an addiction um, that helped us, you know, because I was very conscious, look, there's very few people in this book that have the ability. And my thing was always, can we defend it in court? Right. You know, if push comes to shove, do we have the documents? Do we have the court records? Do we have the sources? Do we have people that will testify? All those answers were yes, yes, yes. And yes, you know, with not just Phil, but with other prominent people in the book as well. Um, or almost everybody in the book, because I don't, I don't take any of that to by chance. But you're right; it was, it was a very, it was probably the most complicated part of the book was to decide how far is too far, and what's the point here, Bill? 
And in the end, you know, that last scene with them at Rancho Santa Fe where Phil, who hasn't talked to Billy in five years, never wrote him a letter, never called him when he was in prison, certainly never visited. They're on that, it's, you know, you can't make the scene up. They're on the practice tee and driving range. And, you know, Phil kind of tries to offer an apology. And Billy's a no-bullshit guy. And he just says, look, cut the bullshit. I know what you, I know what you did. I, I know why you did it. And look, Phil was in a, he was in a box. I understand that. He had, there was another investigation that he was a part of in the middle of that money laundering investigation that put Greg Silvera in prison. Um, and he hired Gregory Craig, who was Obama's former chief White House counsel. You talk about juice, political juice. You know, I can't fault Phil for doing what Phil did. He did what was best for Phil. But I was writing Billy Walter's book, not Phil Mickelson's book. And so that's how Bill feels. Yeah, you know, a lot of those things that you mentioned, they're, they're, they're first you know, kind of time spent together at Pebble Beach in 06, the, the, the getting together and Phil saying to him, you know, do you do partnerships at the, the Wednesday Pro-Am of the Wells Fargo in, in, in Charlotte? And, and what I find, you know, interesting, and, and Phil, yeah, like you said, is admitted to having a, a gambling addiction that, you know, for, for all of the gambling that Billy has done in his life, he was the one who exercised the discipline and the responsibility of making it abundantly clear to Phil from the outset, every single wager we make will be done legally. That's the only way I do it. And, and not that Phil was doing it illegally, but, but the fact is, is that Billy had to scold him and give me the timeline exactly how far into the partnership did Billy have to say to him, hey, I told you what the rules are and you're yeah. breaking the rules. Not very far, you know, because Phil, Phil had the, he wanted to bet, you know, outside the partnership using some of the games that they were doing. And it doesn't take, it takes five minutes for Billy Walters to find out if somebody's using his number someplace else. That's just the way his network was. He's, I mean, when you have 1600 accounts around the world and you have the respect that Billy has it within the bookmaking um, establishment, um, I think that, you know, Billy and Phil, Billy saw Phil as, I think, as a, as a son, you know, or a younger brother, maybe, but more like a son. Mm. And he counseled him because, frankly, Bill had been through everything that Phil was going through. He knew, you know, he could see that Phil wanted action. He, he saw the addiction firsthand, you know, the need to bet multiple games on a single day. And you mentioned you know, Billy, it took Billy a long time on um, for that most important fact, I think, in sports gambling is discipline. You have to decide how much you want to lose. And then in Bill's case, it's different. But for the average better, certainly I've said it to family members and I've said it to friends. What's your bankroll? How much do you want to lose? And then Bill's thing is you never bet more than one to 3% of your bankroll on any given game. So if it's 10,000, you never bet more than 300 on a game. Well, that just wasn't Phil. And Bill could see that. Um, but he also saw that Phil at the time, you know, how much money is Phil worth? Who knows? But Phil had said, I was worth a quarter million, quarter of a billion dollars at that point in time, 250 million. So Bill saying, well, if we're betting 20 or 30 million a year together, 
big deal. He can afford to lose that amount of money because he's got 50 million in endorsement money coming in every year. But Phil, and when Bill said this, and I didn't, he didn't say it in the book, but he said it subsequently in a lot of the publicity that he's done, is Phil was the biggest better he'd ever been around. And I heard that from a intermediary source that was dealing with a major offshore book. And the person that was running that book was named Ron Sacco, who was the biggest bookie in the world. And he said Phil was the biggest better he had ever seen in terms of volume and dollars. And that's a that's a pretty powerful statement coming from Ron Sacco. Because, um, you know, he was doing a billion dollars a year in business, too, through his book. So I think it's I, it's a as I said, it's a complicated relationship. Um, there's so much I like about Phil. Uh, he I think to me, he was the one legitimate. You know how Tiger was. He was always looking for the next threat. You know, where was it coming from? Was it going to be VJ? Was it going to be David Duvall? Was it going to be Sergio? When Phil showed up with pretty fearless, that's the one that I think that Tiger was the most concerned about. And it elevated his game mm. because he, he lived, he lives for those. He lived for those kinds of um, competitions. You, um, the, the, the story about Phil calling Billy in 2012, just before yeah. the Ryder cup, uh, and suggesting he wanted to lay down a $400,000 wager on the United States to win the Ryder Cup, as you made it very, very clear, um, it, was a, it was a phone conversation, and Billy shot him down. And where it went from there, he doesn't know. And, and, but, but the question is, something like that is not only incredibly sensational, but it makes people wonder, my God, how could that be so isolated? That that how could that thought from Phil Mickelson exist in that moment? Did his thought about wagering on anything in the game of golf in which he was a participant happen prior or since? Wouldn't that naturally, you think, raise a flag, whether it be the PGA Tour, the PGA of America that runs the Ryder Cup, to do further investigation on that? Well, you would think, yes. Um, you would think that they would... Look, that's to me, when Billy said that to me, I almost literally fell out of my chair. I'm like, what? 400,000? And, you know, and I, I wrote something for the Fire Pit yes. Collective um, after Phil's non denial denial, which was essentially, I never bet on the Ryder Cup. We did not say, I never, I didn't call Bill Walters and want to bet 400,000. Understood. Um, he came to his senses, I think, thank God in a lot of ways, because that's not something you ever want to have out there. Witness Pete Rose. And as Billy said, Jesus, you're the Arnold Palmer of golf. What are you doing here? You know, what, what, what are you thinking? But it's interesting because we did look at it. There were, and I, this is off the top of my head here, it's like 70-something times when Phil was playing in PGA events or events around the world, he was betting heavily on sports. We never saw a golf bet anywhere ever make that perfectly crystal clear yep. ever. But, you know, the one example we gave um, when he won the AT&T, he had lost $4 million betting college basketball the day before on that Saturday. Which is an amazing story because I can just tell you, Armin, oh is somebody who's, who's, who's covering the event and he shoots 64 in the final round playing with, with Tiger. Tiger. He's playing with Tiger at Pebble, and he shoots 64, 
and and he is in the throes of a, a bad bad day gambling on other a stuff bad, bad day yeah and i i know and having talked to people that phil um spoke with over that weekend he was at his wits end you know after losing four million he's like what in the world am i doing well the next day he goes out and shoots 64 and wins the at&t and he beats tiger by 11. i mean to me that's one of the most amazing moments in the whole book it's taking billy walters out of the equation you're like holy moly you talk about the ability to um separate things in your life or compartmentalize would be the better word how do you do that i mean and it's not like four dollars you know or forty dollars or four hundred thousand it's four million which is not an insignificant amount of money and i don't care how much you're worth but then you go out and just dominate on sunday and win the event you're like wow that's that there's some interesting things going on in that guy's head that's for sure no, no doubt now you mentioned his his unwillingness to testify there was an there was an, a call made on billy's behalf to phil where he said that he would testify and then he ultimately yes. did not but the episode where he goes to pay this debt after he refuses to testify and upon leaving phil says to billy you know i'm going to be around for a couple of weeks do you want to play golf armin yeah. there is a there is i don't know what the right i don't know if it's obtuse i don't know if it's flakiness i don't know if it's an absence of compassion it, it's maybe all of those things how could phil mickelson who has an understanding of a lot of things maybe he thinks he knows more about a lot of things than he actually does but come on there's an absence of humanity there Our that is unimaginable narcissism you know yes. i mean i was like when billy told me that story i originally wanted to open the book with that story because i just thought it spoke volumes about both bill puts bill in a very and i've sat on that, that patio bill has since sold that house and bought another house in ranch santa fe but I was I sat where they sat on that deck overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And all I can, you know, I, I'll still remember to this day, Billy and I talking about it, having lunch and talking to each other. And I'm like, okay, let's go over this one more time. You know, let let let's get granular here because what did you say to him? What did he say to you? Put me inside your head. And he still got that ankle bracelet on. He's going to prison. You know, he just got convicted on 10 charges, 10 counts of insider trading he's facing god knows how many years in prison he thinks phil's coming there to settle this debt which he is it's two and a half million dollars bets outside their partnership that he owed because they always settled around the three million mark um and i said well what did he say and he's like all he was doing was talking about himself and about oh i lost my exxon mobile um sponsorship and i lost my barclays sponsorship and i had to take a a 30% cut on my KPMG and I, oh, my, my private plane has been depreciated by X millions of dollars. And Billy's thinking, I can't believe what's come out of this guy's mouth. But if you know Phil and you do know Phil, I mean, how many times have you heard the words, you know, he thinks he's the smartest guy in every room, whether he's the smartest guy in every room or not. And I think there's a lot of that there, that narcissism, that lack of empathy and humanity for other people it's like you got to be kidding me here but to me it was a very powerful scene because 
Bill, as he said, if I could buy my way out of this partnership right now, I, I, you know, I, 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 there's no amount of money I wouldn't pay. Um, so, yeah, those are the kinds of things when you're looking for, you know, one of the, not to diverse too much, but the thing that makes 60 Minutes so successful and those stories so good is we were always looking for moments in the interviews you string those moments together in a in a very cohesive, powerful, compelling way, and you get a sixty minutes piece. Those inter those interviews, everything is based around those interviews. If you can interview and you create those moments, often they're spontaneous. When someone says something and you go, "Oh, I wasn't going to ask that till later," but now you know what it's like. Do you ask it in that moment? Well, I knew moments, so I know that's a moment. That's a moment that's going in the book. The book is, in so many ways, it's a series of moments in Bill's life strung together over the course of 28 chapters that really give you a 360-degree view of a man's life. And that's really all I was, not all, but it was that was the main focus of what I was trying to do is, like, who is Billy Walters? And, you know, why do I care about this guy? You know, a few other things here. I, I, you go into reading something like this and, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be for or against one person or the other, but I didn't have any earthly idea about the dubious nature of, of the behavior and the conduct of the Department of Justice and the FBI uh -huh. and these things around, around this investigation. Um, it's, it's beyond extraordinary. Um, and and I, I set that up by, by then asking this question. It doesn't appear to me that Phil Mickelson would have been exposing himself in any way, even though the money laundering case was out there on the periphery, and I'm, I'm sure it was center in his mind, had he just gone in there and all Billy was asking him was to just tell the truth that these yeah. conversations well, just we make had, the public statement, just, Gary, you know? That's it. That's, he didn't that's even have it. to show up in New York. Uh, all you had to do is, I mean, Phil made some public statements about Billy, you know, including at the memorial after Billy was convicted. Yes. I, I read that press conference. I pulled it up and word for word in the book where Phil is basically dancing on Billy's grave a little bit saying, oh, I have to be more careful about the people I associate with. Really? Okay. The same person that had associated with um, the Saudis? I mean, if we can go in the same person that associated with Dandy Don De Serrano, one of the biggest bookies and organized crime figures in, in Detroit. The, we could go on and on with some of the dubious associations that Phil had and has had. Um, yeah, to me, as the investigative journalist, um, the Southern District of New York, to me, that chapter, 60 minutes to five years, that was originally three chapters that got compressed wisely. So I think our editor, Jofi Ferrari Adler did it. It was one of his really astute um, observations. Guys, this is great, but we got to cut it down and make it faster. And we did. Um, I did. And other people helped. Um, but it was more, I have that ex parte letter that Preet Bahara sent to Judge Castell where they, the government, the Southern District of New York, the Justice Department admitted that a senior supervisory agent of the FBI, David Chavez, 
repeatedly, by my count, at least 13 times, met privately and secretly with reporters from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times to feed them secret grand jury testimony, which is a cardinal sin in the court of law, in the court of justice. I would call the chapter Southern Injustice. That would that would be my name for it, because clearly after Billy and the computer group beat the FBI in that famous trial in Vegas in the early 90s, he had a target on his back from the Justice Department. And when he made a self-admitted mistake of saying some things in a 60 Minutes interview about, you know, Tycho and some of the other um, WorldCom and some of the other businesses that were nothing more than frauds cost Billy $12 million in stock in those companies. He said some things publicly on 60 about swindlers and thieves that set the SEC after him. And when you set, I mean, at one point in time, he's being investigated by the FBI, the Southern District of New York, the IRS, and the SEC. I don't know about you, I don't want one of those investigating me, let alone four of them. But that was Billy. They wanted Billy. He had a target on his back. And in the end, um, I won't go into chapter and verse in the book, but they they used one guy's word who had his own set of problems, Tom Davis, 29 different um, times he had to speak with the government to get his story straight. You got to be kidding me, right? And I think had Phil, to go back to Phil, had Phil shown up, in New York, the power of his personality and his um, credibility um, with the public, Billy believes would have turned the tide in his favor with the jurors. Mm. And for reasons that are self-explanatory in the book, Bill made a very conscious, I mean, Phil made a very conscious decision not to do that. Um, that fractured a friendship that will never be repaired. The um, the top of page 308, I'm just going to read this to, to kind of, finish up on Phil. Um, Billy wrote, looking back, I realize there's a common denominator in many of Phil's long-term relationships, be it 30 years playing on the PGA Tour, 25 years working with Jim Bones Mackay, 17 years betting with Greg Silveria, or five years gambling with me. When push comes to shove, Phil doesn't care about anyone except himself. Time and time again, he never stood up for a friend. He refused to simply tell the truth when it could have meant the difference between prison and exoneration. There's a self-preservation to that, Armin, that, that again, self-preservation and narcissism is like affirmed in Aladar. I mean, they're just, they're, they're always running neck and neck. And there's a duplicity to fill, like all the, all the autographs and all of the generosity. And I was recently with Butch Harmon, and he talked about these, these incredibly generous things he's done for him. And then there's the counter to it. And like yeah. you said, he's a, he's a fascinating study, but there's a complexity to it um, that would take a lot of time to try to fully understand. No, I think you're absolutely right. You picked out, it's, it's amazing. That, you know, the, how long did it take you to read it? Maybe um, 40 seconds. I can't tell you how much time and effort went into coming to that conclusion. Mm. And then not just Bill, but the individuals that are mentioned there, you know, I've had relationships with over the course of the last three, four or five years in various ways, shapes or forms. And um, 
no, that was a reoccurring theme in all of those relationships was first and foremost, it was Phil. And, and to me, when Billy said that, I was like, okay, that's, that's the icing on the cake for us. That's how I really feel about my relationship with Phil. Wish comes to shove in the end, it's going to be about Phil. And I'm not, look, I'm far from a, I'm the last person probably that should be sitting around telling people how they, to live their life. And, um, and then you just have to be careful when you get into those kinds of circumstances to not sound like a hypocrite on your end. Um, but I think that, that really sums up how Bill Walters feels about Phil Mickelson. Push comes to shove, it was going to be about Phil and it was not going to be about Bill. The um the book has so much in it. I I could talk to you at great length about, you know, the expertise associated with legalized gambling, where we are today in our society with the acceptance of it, uh, out of the shadows after after forever in terms of Vegas now being basically the American epicenter for for the sporting enterprises that that we have in this country, alcoholism recovery. Um, this is a book about about not only like you said, a uniquely American life. It's also about survival um, yes. and, and, and success. Um, and, and it's interesting. I'll, I'll end it with this. You know, the, the death of his friend Fred Ferris um, was, was the impetus for him to really do his first real introspective examination of, okay, smoking, alcohol, it, this is killing me and that he was able to stop cold turkey as somebody who's, who's trying to live a life of sobriety every day myself. I, I laughed out loud when he said, you know, I thought alcoholics were people who drank, you know, every day and couldn't stop. And, and it's, it's one of a million different rationalizations that alcoholics give until they're ready to do the only thing that's going to save their life. And that is surrender. So look, this book is, so entertaining, so interesting, um, and so thorough about talking about this man's life, which also includes gambling at the game of golf. Which uh, let me let me end with this as I come kind of I'm filibustering here. The fact that that professional gambler gambler's invitational, they they eliminated all rules of golf except Isn't one. That the best? Except yeah. one. When you find your damn ball, you play it as it lies. Like, Isn't that the best? At, Armin, at the, at the essence of all the impropriety associated with trying to get you any can advantage you can. You can put grease on your club. <laughs> you can change somebody's lie. You can, do, can, you can do anything. You can actually slip somebody a Mickey and nobody would give a shit. But no, you, if it's on the top of a ball washer, that's where you play it. You know, And that's the beauty of it. I mean... I had so much fun talking to guys like Jack Binion and Billy Baxter and Dewey Tomko and you know, Gene McCarley who tells this great story. We didn't even talk about it, but I won't give it away about a black swan and playing with Billy for a hundred bucks. <laughs> and it was like they were playing for a hundred thousand. You know, you play it where it lays. And that's a perfect example yes. of no, there's no, there, no, no. It's right here on top of the uh, swan dump. Right. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this, and and I'm I'm really proud of where the book is. It's got great reviews, and you know when you spend as much time as as both Bill and I did, and there's another guy, Dave Satterfield, who worked on the betting chapters, 
um, Glenn Bunning, who was really close with the editing on this, all of us spent an enormous amount of time trying to make this book really special. And, and I think it works on a lot of different levels, not only as a sports book and as a sports betting book and a golf book, but it really works on the personal level which is what I was really after. So thank you for saying that. Well, and I will I'll just indulge me just one step further. I've never had a chance to share this with you. Of, of all the conversations I've had about the Tiger book with people, and, and I understand, like, gosh, you know, it's, just, it's, it's peeling back so much of it. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, he was more, to me anyway, and your goal is to try to be, to be first truthful to be as fair as you possibly can in the collaboration you and Jeff did. He was more endearing at the end. Oh, I, I, the the no compassion kidding. I felt for him Thank you. Was, was immeasurable. Thank you. We made Tiger understandable and empathetic in the end because you appreciate in so many ways so much of what happened to him was out of his control. Now, there were times when he was out of control himself, but in the end, it's it's you feel sorry for Tiger in some way, shape, or form, and and trust me, and I'll. There were periods of time when Jeff and I were writing that book before we got to the end, before Tiger won at Eastlake, and before you know, God, the, just the moments with the Masters and everything else. We're like, he's getting kind of hard to like here, you know. But then I saw him in January, right before the book came out in 18 at Tory, and he was different. He was more engaged. I was like, oh my God, I think there's hope here. And then there was. And so thank you for saying that because I think, and I, I, Tiger and I have never talked about the book and I doubt we ever will, but if he ever said anything to me, I would say to him, you know what? You should feel lucky that it was Jeff and I that did this book because you came out of this a much more endearing person than when we started. And, you know, yes, warts and all, not really, because we made conscious decisions not to go to certain places um, in Tiger's life, because again, you're trying to balance the, you know, what are we trying to do here? I'm not, I'm not into writing salacious, sensational. Not, I'm not gonna spend three years of my life to write a book. If I wanted to be sensational about Tiger, I could have done it in a year you know, not three years. To understand him took us three years. And and that was the same way with Billy. In order to write from a position of, of strength, you have to understand, you have to kind of get inside that person's head. And I will never say I was in, inside Tiger's head, but I certainly, um, I, I think I, I go back to what, the two things that drew us to the book, who is Tiger Woods and what's the price of genius? And the price of genius is what was really driving the storytelling because there is a price and Tiger paid it. But in the end, you're like, oh, my God. He, and when he, when he hugs Charlie or he's, he's hugging his family members or you think about that hug his, he had with his dad after the Masters in 97, then you think about the hug with Charlie, you're like, oh, my God, okay, there's, this is a great father. And in the end, if you get to that point, boy, I'll tell you something, being a great father and a great husband is a, I'll put that at the top of my list any day. No question. You use the word genius. Uh, in the history of mankind, uh, genius is not without being messy. Uh, genius yeah. is not pretty. 
it's genius no. and it's complicated and i i congratulate you and jeff on that and and presently um this book right here uh is awfully awfully good uh, i know it like you said seven thousand hours it's a lot of hours it's a lot of time and, and it shows it shows in the work thank you for taking the time thank to spend with me I'm really good. appreciate thank you so it. much i really really enjoyed it thank you so much well as you can see at least I hope you can see, and in hearing, this is an amazing life, but the story of how Billy Walters wound up in jail is beyond dubious. And, and it's not just the absence of Phil Mickelson making a public statement or not testifying on his behalf. The government and the FBI, a lot of it. And the fact that this man, in his mid-70s, came out of jail and didn't just throw flamethrowers at everybody and just wrote a book that is complete and in total and examining and telling his story of his life. Pretty amazing. I appreciate Armin Contein. Most importantly, appreciate all of you out there for listening and watching to this Five Clubs conversation. We'll see you next week.